You're listening to Work Human Radio. And here's your host, Mike Wood. It's that time again. It's time for another episode of Work Human Radio, pioneered by Global Force. My name is Mike Wood, and I'm joined by Sarah Payne. Hi, Sarah. Can I get some of that energy, Mike? Yes, I have had two coffees this morning, and I am feeling fantastic. This week, we talked to Rajiv Peshawaria, who is the CEO of iCliff Leadership and Governance Center. He was the chief learning officer at Coca-Cola and Morgan Stanley in the past. Um, he also spoke at Work Human last year, and like many of our Work Human speakers, we like to keep in touch. So, Sarah, what did you guys talk about? So, Rajiv has a lot of really straightforward, common sense ideas about management or how broken management is. So actually a couple of his books, Open Source Leadership, Too Many Bosses, Too Few Leaders. So a lot of these ideas actually are in line with uh, past working speakers like Gary Hamill, you know, ending bureaucracy. So we had a really interesting conversation. I love that uh, bureaucracy drives me insane. Um, I'm glad we don't have a lot of it. <laughs> Who uh, likes it? Yeah, yeah nobody <laughs> likes it. Um, so um, what I really liked about this interview is that Rajiv is talking about like kind of like the East and West styles mm. of, of leadership. And, you know, is it different in Asia where he's from or, you know, and kind of like this whole notion of open source leadership, this whole crowdsourcing that, you know, we basically do for everything nowadays. So um, I'm very excited to listen to this and hopefully our audience is too. So here is our interview with Rajiv. So, uh, Rajiv, can you just start by giving a bit of background on uh, your work with the iCliff Leadership and Governance Center? Yeah, so, you know, I um, I was uh, working uh, um, in the corporate world for a long time. Uh, my last two corporate jobs were the chief learning officer of first Coca-Cola and then Morgan Stanley. And I decided that I wanted to uh, have a greater impact and was thinking of setting up my own shop, but I got this call from the ICLIF Leadership and Governance Center, which is a not-for-profit that was looking for a new CEO. Uh, and they, uh, they were all about, uh, you know, promoting research on leadership and corporate governance, uh, blending the best of the East and the West and uh, making it uh, very, very practical and spreading it far and wide as much as possible, uh, kind of in a more holistic way. And uh, so that appealed to me. So I, I came uh, to the center about eight and a half years ago and uh, you know, have been um, have been here since. And uh, what we do is we do research, we do uh, executive education, we do human capital consulting, uh, and executive coaching, um, besides publishing out of uh, the center, all on uh, leadership and governance. So, is there a big difference between East and West styles of leadership? You know, it's in- interesting uh, that you ask because uh, when I first got here, we. Uh, Everybody told me, oh, you know, Western leadership and Asian leadership is very different. So we conducted a study called the Asian Leadership Index, where we uh, looked at, uh, we talked to people in 17 Asian countries, and we asked them two questions. You know, is leadership different in Asia, good leadership different in Asia compared to the West? Uh, And also, are there differences in leadership between various countries in Asia? Uh, what do followers expect or, or people uh, expect from their leaders in order to be fully motivated and to do their best work? And contrary to what everybody had told us, we found that there were no differences. When it comes to me as an employee uh, being fully engaged and giving my very best, what I expect from my leader in America is the same as what I expect from my leader in Japan. I want to be treated fairly. I want to be treated as a human being. Uh, I want to be given opportunity and fair feedback and all of those things. They didn't change at all from country to country. That's really interesting. And I think that's 
probably a big reason why you came to work human because even, you know, across countries, across cultures, you know, we're, we all have the same human needs. Yeah, because innately we are all human and humans are humans. You know, we tend to, I think people tend to confuse cultural differences with differences in leadership. But leadership mm. and followership at, the, at, the, at its essence uh, is the same. The work of leadership is to create a better future uh, and to do it with the right values. And that doesn't change anywhere in the world. Your latest book is called Open Source Leadership. Um, so have you seen any resistance from traditional companies in embracing this concept? It is a bit forward-thinking. Yes, I do. Uh, you see, here's the thing. Traditional corporate bosses don't want to give up control, whereas the 21st century gig economy workforce demands freedom and flexibility. So ironically, you know, these same corporate bosses who want more, their organizations to be more successful or as successful as they can be don't understand the simple idea that the more freedom you give to your people, the more successful your organization is going to be financially. They just don't get it. And uh, uh, they, are, they are so steeped in 20th, 20th century management techniques that were about maximizing control, whereas the 21st century, the open source century, is about giving up control. Uh, it's not about competition. It's about cooperation. It's about opening up the whole kimono and uh, you know using the crowd. Uh, all of this requires giving up control, and traditional corporate bosses just don't want to do that. Do you have any advice for um, leaders that are in favor of this open source idea, but trying to convince maybe their peers or or uh, counterparts that don't. Yeah, well, you know, aren't there are lots of companies that are. That, sorry. Yes, there are lots of companies that are actually embracing these concepts, and wherever we have studied uh, this phenomena, we have found that the, a large majority of people, when you give them trust, when you give them freedom, they return that with responsible behavior. So trust begets trust, freedom begets responsibility. So, uh, and that in turn uh, leads to uh, higher profitability and sales, et cetera. We've got data to prove that. Uh, so, and, and, and companies are, are, are finding out that that is the case. I'll give you just one example. You know, uh, Netflix used to have a very detailed uh, policy on travel and entertainment. These are the rules you follow when you tra travel on company expense, right? One fine day, they scrapped that entire policy and replaced it with one sentence act in Netflix's best interest. And when they did mm -hmm. that, uh, travel and entertainment expenses over the next two years went down, not up. And there are many, many other examples I can give you uh, of this type. So one of iClass values is give and get feedback. Um, do you have any advice for organizations that are looking to create a culture of feedback? Yes, uh, a couple of things come to mind. The first one is Nothing works better than role modeling from the top. So if the top leaders of the organization give and ask for feedback all the time, everybody else will do the same. As a CEO of my company, I give feedback all the time, and I seek feedback all the time. And what that does is it encourages my peers to do the same, and people one level below, two levels below to do the same. Uh, so I think role modeling from the top is the way to go when it comes to creating any sort of culture, whether a culture of feedback or any other type of culture. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, you know, I always advise my clients and uh, leaders is to, if you have a set of clearly defined corporate values, right, create a 360 feedback instrument based on those values and have everybody take it at the end of each year or sometime during the year 
with the people they work closely with and say, did this person live the values? Mm. Rather than doing employee engagement surveys, which have all kinds of flaws in them, doing a culture-based 360 uh, uh, based on the company's values is much more useful. Uh, and it also uh, you know, uh, permeates the feedback habit more deeply into the organization. So those would be my two simple ones. One is um, you know, role model feedback, um, particularly the asking of the feedback, uh, from the top, and then secondly, uh, you know, try considering a values-based 360 system once a year. Mm, so normalizing it and just making it more frequent, so it's not as scary <laughs> to give and get. Feedback. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, you give feedback it, throughout the year verbally, but once a year, you do the formal system as well. Mm. So in the U.S., uh, unemployment is an all-time low. Um, people are scrambling. Uh, companies are scrambling. How can they apply the concept of crowdsourcing to set themselves apart in this economy? Well, I don't think that innovation and unemployment levels have anything to do with each other. I think the need for companies today in the U.S. and everywhere else is to innovate fast and innovate more frequently. Because if you don't innovate fast enough and if you don't innovate regularly and more frequently, then you get left behind in an era of uh, high speed, which is what the open source era is all about, right? So I think if you want to in innovate, uh, you know, uh, frequently and more f and fast, you have to use the crowd. Why limit uh, creativity to just your employees? At those days when you know uh, the R&D department was on a secretive floor and needed a different pass and nobody could go in because everything was secret and things like that, I think those days are kind of over. Today, mm -hmm. you've got to open yourself up to the crowd and get uh, uh, you know innovation from wherever it comes. Uh, this idea that talent is scarce and innovation is even more scarce is something that the 20th, 20th century management tech, uh, philosophy was based on. It's very hard mm -hmm. to find talented people, therefore very hard to find innovation. I think uh, we live in an, a in an age of, uh, of universal connectivity and talent and, and innovation are not scarce at all. We can now find them through technology wherever they are. You know, when, when GE Aviation wanted to innovate uh, and change the design of the brackets on which the engines are mounted. Uh, they did a global contest, and the and the, the winning uh, design came from Java, Indonesia. So a aviation giant in Cincinnati, Ohio, found innovation from Java, Indonesia, at a total cost of twenty grand. Whereas if they had given the same challenge to their own R and D department, they probably would have spent a billion dollars in a year's time. So. Talent and innovation are not scarce. They are they are available. Technology lets you get them. It actually it reminds me of a program we have at our company, and it's called Global Innovation. And a few times a year, anybody in the company can submit an idea to make our product or service better. And those ideas can come from anywhere in the company, any department. And I think it's a really interesting way to innovate and also to get employees engaged. And it's Absolutely. What you're, you know, because what you're describing is what I call internal crowdsourcing. I think mm -hmm. all succession planning should be based on that idea that you just described, which is instead of having artificial spreadsheets and, and doing uh, psychometric assessments to decide who is high potential and low potential, open this contest up every year that anybody that has any idea to improve something or do something better for the company, submit an idea, and the best ideas will be presented to the board or something like that. The people that raise their hands every year over and above their day job to do this, aren't they your natural leaders? Mm. Succession takes care of itself. Innovation takes care of itself. That's called open source. 
So uh, in line with this philosophy, what would you say is the biggest mistake that companies make when it comes to recognizing and rewarding their employees? You know, I believe that the whole performance management process, which is the the the, the uh, widely followed philosophy around managing and rewarding performance, is flawed. Uh, you know, there are two so-called so-called truths about managing employee performance. One is uh, we must encourage all employees to set stretch goals because everybody should learn to go above and beyond. And second, managers must closely monitor and motivate people so that these stretch goals can be achieved. And I think there, therein lies the, the big flaw. Because, you know, since 1906, the 80-20 rule that Wilfredo Pareto showed us has not been debunked, which means that 80% of the effects are because of 20% of the causes. And the dreaded bell curve when it comes to human performance in companies, the 20-60-20, 20% are high performers, 60 are average performers, 20 are bottom performers, is a derivative of the Pareto principle. And that has not been debunked. So why get everybody to write stretch goals when you know that only 20% of the people are going to actually achieve them? Mm. And the point is, the remaining 80% are not bad people. The top 20% for whom work is everything, they cannot do anything without the support of the remaining 80. Uh, the average guys are saying, look, I, work is important to me, but not, it's not everything to me. And so I, I want to be in the middle 60, and I'm okay with you paying me at the middle 60. And the guy who's uh, people who want to take minimum work because their passion is everywhere, somewhere else, if it's an honest contract that, look, pay me the minimum, but also give me minimum goals, what's wrong with that? So the whole contract of employment is dishonest because, you know, nobody owns up to the fact. I mean, imagine a conversation between boss and employee. Hey, boss, you know, I, uh, I like this company, but this is not my real passion. My real passion is theater. But theater doesn't always pay the bills, so I need this job. But can I please have the minimum possible work in return for minimum possible pay? And also, I take the risk that if I fall below the minimum, you will fire me with no questions asked. Is that okay, boss? Mm. Now, this is a perfectly honest conversation that never takes place. My point is, why not make it that way? Why not let people choose where they want to be on the 20-60-20 curve and pay them and reward them accordingly? Because whatever you do, the top 20% are going to produce 80% of the results. So organizational productivity will not suffer. And because you've taken the stigma away from non-performance in terms of those stretch goals from the other 80%, whatever they contribute, they contribute with happiness rather than stress. So overall, productivity should go up, not down. So that's mm-hmm. my, uh, my my big issue with the way performance is measured and rewarded. And I think it's also important, like you were saying, you know, those, that 20%, they will always go above and beyond, but they couldn't, they still couldn't do what they do without the support of their colleagues. Um, maybe they're in support yeah. roles. And so I think it, it also shows how important it is to recognize the contributions of even, you know, the employees that are maybe a three out of five. Um, you know, every day they're doing things, they're making contributions that are important to the company. So um, Absolutely, because, you know, the, 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 the idea is not to glorify the top 20. The, the others are very, very important. They are your solid citizens. Without them, the top 20 cannot do anything. But just right. that their needs are different, and you've got to treat them fairly. Uh, and, you know, if there is an honest contract because, you know, I want to work this much, so please pay me only this much, that's fine, isn't it? I think millennials would really like that concept. <laughs> um, so my last question that I always ask our uh, past work human speakers is, what does a more human workplace mean to you? 
So it's linked to what I said just now. You know, when people are given the freedom to work as they please in return for suitable rewards, uh, that to me is a more human workplace. My experience and my research, global research, reveals that a vast majority of people return trust and freedom with responsible behavior, as I said earlier. So a more human workplace is one where people are trusted until found guilty. There will be a small portion of people that will misuse the privileges given to them. Well, we should take action with them. We should not penalize everybody. The default should not be to maximize control. That is a very 20th century idea. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. So thank you so much, Rajiv. I really appreciate you joining us on Work Human Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Work Human Radio is brought to you by Globoforce, pioneers of the work human movement. Globoforce helps make work more human for millions of people and organizations worldwide. Learn more by visiting Globoforce.com and join the work human movement by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and the Work Human Community Forum on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening to Work Human Radio.